CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the second part of the Ben Jarofsky show. With me on the phone is ace attorney Jim Coogan. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, Ben. Good to be here. You sound loud and clear. I love this connection. I'm very excited about this connection. I hope it doesn't break up when a train goes by. Uh, as uh, I just want to um, alert our listeners who may, be, who may have missed the first show that dropped at about 345 today. Uh, Dr. D. Dennis, our ace producer, my uh, partner in crime, uh, my dear podcasting friend, uh, won't be with us for this week. His father passed away. Over the weekend, so we had to go home to all Illinois. And Brian, uh, the brain at the Chicago Sun-Times, who the man who runs the podcasting empire at the Sun-Times, is the producer of the Fran Spielman Show. And he worked with Richard Roper and Rick Tallender on uh, their podcast. He has been so um, kind to step in and help us, and he's doing a great job. So thank you very much, Brian. All right, Jim, let's get down to business. Jim Coogan, of course, uh, ace attorney, uh, Dwyer and Coogan, comes on the show about once a month. We talk legal issues. We've been talking legal issues for three years and more and more. Uh, it comes down, what our discussion comes down to a question. How is that legal? And generally, the question is applied to something that Donald Trump uh, is up to. So, Jim, I'm going to run through really fast the agenda that I want to uh, follow uh, in this discussion. We'll see how much of it uh, we keep to. You know, our conversations tend to wander all over the place. But uh, I want to talk about how is it legal for uh, Trump to commute the sentence of Roger Stone, a potential co-conspirator? Uh, and uh, will, in your humble opinion, uh, Trump follow up with uh, Michael Flynn? And um, and then I'm going to throw something at you that Monroe Anderson raised. Um, can Trump uh, can Trump step down and have Pence pardon him if he hasn't been convicted of anything? Uh, and uh, we'll get into the Supreme Court ruling on Trump and taxes and also how Neil Gorsuch is such a liberal. That's a lot on the agenda. Let's uh, start with item number one. Commuting the sentence of Roger Stone. Take a deep dive for a bit, uh, Jim, and explain to folks exactly what went down. So very quickly, let's start with who is Roger Stone. Most of your listeners will remember the name. He is a reputed political hatchet man, fixer, uh, dirty trickster. I, I think he would – he's the kind of guy who wouldn't – there's few things you could say about him that he wouldn't wholly endorse. I don't think he sees any of these things as insults. He takes them as badges of honor. Uh, he's the guy with the Nixon tattoo on his back shoulder um, because he's so um, – he, he, he feels so fondly about the former president who uh, had to resign in disgrace over his willingness to bend the law or break it in order to retain power. Um, so Stone has known Donald Trump for a very long time. They were friends before Donald Trump tried to become a politician, and uh, he certainly had a lot to do with Trump's evolution 
by 2015 into becoming a presidential candidate. So he also, because of his connections throughout the world, he, he has some shady people that he's friends with in uh, other countries, was instrumental in um, trying to figure out the right word to describe this, instrumental in the existence of uh, the WikiLeaks campaign to uh, coordinate with or receive information from Russian intelligence agencies that hacked the DNC servers and uh, then because of his his involvement there had foreknowledge of some of those big data dumps, those big email dumps that brought all kinds of problems for John Podesta, brought all kinds of problems for the Hillary Clinton campaign. So he he was really like a go-between. Uh, and there, but there is a lot about his re- relationship with the Trump campaign because in 2015, he was an official advisor and then no longer had an official role at some point um, by 2016. So there's a lot we don't know exactly about what he knew, when he knew it, uh, who he talked to, who his, who his exact sources were. And the parts that we don't know actually are the the where this turns into a legal case because things that he refused to talk about or lied about were the subject of his later prosecution. And what was he prosecuted? What was the uh, what were they going after with the prosecution? So if if you recall, he actually testified to a congressional subcommittee at one point when they were trying to figure out what happened. Who how did a how did a foreign power get and get the access that they did? How did they know how to use this information? What was WikiLeaks' role? I mean, the the fundamental thing that kept people coming back to in the intelligence community or in the media commenting on this, even during the uh, actual campaign, was it would have been unlikely for Russian intelligence services to know how to use this information the most effective way possible without American assistance. No matter how good their spy agencies might be, um, they still don't know American politics as well as a guy like Roger Stone would, or wouldn't have a line to the. I mean, some somebody has to be their conduit to the Trump campaign. Um, so eventually, he did testify before Congress. Uh, true to his uh, character, he did not tell the truth to Congress. So his his prosecution was based upon obstruction and not turning information over, turning documents over, turning resources over, and some of the lies that he told. Uh, and he also, one of the other counts of, I think, seven total counts that he was convicted on was witness intimidation, because he he very violently threatened uh, a guy that he knows, a media personality named Randy Credico, um, who had information about some of these things, or, or may or may not have, but he he threatened, for God's sake, he threatened to kill the guy's dog or something terrible like that. And ultimately with Stone, you know, if you see a picture of him, you think he looks like a like a cartoon villain or something like that because of the way he dresses and the bombastic attitude. But I think the, the thing to remember when it comes to that witness intimidation and the threats is he wouldn't do it himself. But there are people who, if they were turned on to it, uh, would certainly commit violence as part of this overall Trump movement because we've, we've seen that. You know, We saw it in Charlottesville. We've seen it in other places. And so uh, he was convicted by a jury, correct? A jury convicted him, you know, as as we are always reminded, a unanimous jury, 12 people convicted him on all seven counts. Okay. Um, and following that, 
The normal process is that the prosecutors who prosecute the case for the department, in this case, it would have been the Department of Justice, are the ones who then say to the judge, here's our recommendation. There are very strict sentencing guidelines that the federal courts follow when they are sentencing a, uh, someone who's convicted of federal crimes. So to know the guidelines, to know the ins and outs of the case, and then the factors that go to how do you decide if a particular crime can be, you hear the terms in the news, he's going to you know, get three to five years for this particular crime. Well, it's either a range or an actual number centered by the judge, and there could be conditions associated with that. So it's the prosecutor's job to say, well, judge, here's what we think about um, each of these factors for each of these seven counts, and here's what the number of, of months that you should sentence Mr. Stone for. Before they could do that, even though they, the, the prosecutors in this case actually did submit a memo, they were uh, overridden by Attorney General Bill Barr. Um, it's, I think his name comes up in the first 10 minutes of every single podcast we do. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, where, it's an over under on got, this. <laughs> yeah, that's go right. ahead. Uh, that's, that's where things got weird. Um, I mean, uh, other, up to that point, in spite of the fact that Stone is such an outsized character, in spite of the fact that the president was continuously tweeting about him with, you know, enraged, uh, angry tweets about how much of an injustice was being carried out, because the genesis of this prosecution was. The Mueller investigation that that had been carried out into all this Russian interference. Um, so that was a constant thing that he was already in, interfering with. But it got deeper. Uh, Trump and Barr's interference got deeper when Barr overrode what had already been submitted as a memo and had an, a new suggestion to the judge that was far more lenient. Um, and and I mean almost I think almost looked for zero jail time. Um, and then, of course, as a consequence, the people who'd worked on that prosecution, some of them resigned immediately afterwards in protest because of how unusual this was to undermine not just their credibility and the work that they did, but the entire Department of Justice by looking like exactly what this is, which is, uh, you know, a manipulation of the system. It's 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 hackery. It's it's uh, undermining the entire justice system. And the Department of Justice and their credibility as, uh, you know, something more than than you'd see in uh, Banana Republic. So, once that lighter sentence was submitted, Stone was ultimately sentenced to 40 months, and that's where we were up until about a week and a half ago or a week ago, when uh, the president decided to commute that sentence. So, when you commute a sentence, what exactly does that mean? It's a good question. Because it's different than a pardon. Uh, the, the president has pardoning power. They have clemency power. Um, essentially, the commutation of the sentence just means that he does not have to serve the sentence. It does not erase the federal conviction. So as was pointed out very, at least for him, I think very sternly by Robert Mueller in an op-ed that he had published in the Washington Post over the weekend, um, Mr. Stone remains a federal uh, convicted criminal. That's that's still a mark on him, but he won't have to step foot inside of a federal prison to serve any part of that 40-month sentence. Now, why do you think Trump chose commuting him as opposed to pardoning him? 
It's a good question. I think I've, I've heard some speculation about this and read about it in in uh, the the wake of it that it could have something to do with the way that uh, or what Stone could ultimately be prosecuted for by someone else in the future or how he may or may not be compelled to cooperate at some point in the future um, because we'll get back to you started this out by introducing it as how he could do it and how this could be legal when in theory they're part of the same conspiracy um, yes you know the, the 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 future interest in what's happened here in, in stone's activities is that there's certainly more to the story he's already been tried and convicted on these seven crimes but there could be things that are still ongoing. The act of withholding information about the president here, uh, that obstruction, that conspiracy may still be going on. I mean, it it might depend on exactly what communications they've had since since this happened. Um, you can continue to be part of the same conspiracy. Other other acts might occur in the process of uh, when we get to the you know on our way to a November third election this year. So is it possible that Roger Stone could be uh, indicted for an offense related to uh, the um, collusion with Russia, that he could possibly be indicted down the road and still face prison time? Because this thing is this is all about this particular conviction. Just let me you know go back to what you just you said is all about. Uh, lying to Congress or withholding evidence. Uh, it, it, it's not directly related to something he did or may have not, uh, he did or did not do uh, with Russia, if you follow me. So could they come back and, re and indict him on new charges? If there's some other, if there's another aspect of this and there's some other, I mean, a conspiracy, if that's, let's say that's what the, what the crime was that they uh, charged him with. He hasn't been charged with a conspiracy crime related to this yet. So that would, in theory, then be a new crime. Uh, the the defense for Stone would almost certainly raise questions about double jeopardy, that he's already been tried and convicted of whatever it is that they're saying that, he, that they're charging with him in a new indictment. But it would depend on how related the two things are. And again, a conspiracy, uh, a RICO case that included him as a defendant would be different than his actual. So even if it was a conspiracy to obstruct justice, unless it was for the exact same transaction, I don't think he'd be protected by double jeopardy. So, all right, let's get back to. So in other words, there is a possibility that if an investigation uh, proceeds, let's say Trump is not reelected, Joe Biden's uh uh, elected and William Barr is no longer the uh, head of the Justice Department, the Attorney General of the, state of the country, there could be more investigations. Uh, and so it may be a short-lived celebration by Roger Stone. It might be. I mean, if you look at the pattern of activity from Trump and all his acolytes, it's really always about short-term celebrations. I mean, it's constantly winning one media cycle at a time. I mean, it's, so I guess it would be in keeping with their behavior overall. Uh, and yeah, there, there, there's absolutely more that he, depending on who is willing to do what kind of investigation 
going forward, there certainly could be other aspects of this that haven't been charged yet that could be charged in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that kind of brings me to the next uh, point I want to make about this is something that Monroe Anderson threw at me today about uh, Pence pardoning Trump and sort of a fantastical uh, exercise. I'll get to it, but let me just go back in time in 1974 when Nixon stepped down. Uh, his his successor, Gerald Ford, pardoned him so that there would be n- uh, no conviction, no trial of Richard Nixon. And the attitude was time that the country move on from Watergate. Uh, in hindsight, that was politically not a good move for Gerald Ford because I think the the voting, uh, the electorate held it against him in the 76 campaign against Jimmy Carter. Uh, I'm wondering, we're way ahead of ourselves, but I just throw that as a possibility. It seems within, if Joe Biden were president, it seems like a Joe Biden type move just to tell justice, drop this and move on. Yeah. Are you asking me if that's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just have a sense. That's how Joe Biden would handle it. Um, well, so one thing I'll throw out there, I actually forgot to mention there, there may be one other reason why, uh, oh, well, I'm not sure if this is why, but there could be one other reason why Trump did not actually pardon Stone and instead just commuted his sentence. There's an exception in the pardoning power in the Constitution to circumstances where the president has been impeached, regardless of whether or not they were removed from office. Um, I I don't think Stone – I'm not aware of Stone having any involvement with the – Rudy Giuliani, Ukraine caper, that was the central focus of impeachment. But because that's um, because he's been impeached for something, I don't, I don't know if maybe that was another reason why he was restrained because maybe Stone did have something to do with it. Uh, maybe something that Stone was hiding may have had something to do with the, the subsequent um, conspiracy. I would use that word that appeared to be going on with. Um, the, the abuse of the president's power when it came to Ukraine and defense spending in exchange for things that would help his campaign. Um, so I'd throw that out there just to just to add one other factor to a possible explanation for why he did this the way that he did. But I I do think that there will be a great amount of tension within a potential Biden administration. Um, because of his conciliatory and uh, his nature as a guy who has always seen himself as someone who works across the aisle, who yeah. is a gentleman who has fostered relationships with members of the opposing party on a personal level, even if they, they did not agree on policy, um, that is going to be where he comes from. One thing that isn't known just yet is how much of that will be borne out by the rest of a cabinet that he would have. You know, we we may know in the next couple of weeks or in August sometime who his running mate would be, but that would just be a vice president. Is is he going to lean in that direction with everyone that he appoints? Uh, it could very well depend heavily on whoever ends up being his attorney general 
I mean, ultimately, Biden might make the call one way or the other just as a general policy because this would go above the level of, of straightforward law enforcement as whether you go after a prior sitting president. But the tension will exist because yeah. there, the, no matter how much whitewashing and historical um, rewriting is done every day by this White House and their press operation, these things are all just – completely unprecedented. Even Nixon yeah. didn't go to the lengths of pardoning his, his co-conspirators while he was still in office. I think I think he and there's actually a recording I read about this week where he and John Dean are talking about it. Uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about, but he decided against it. Not, And I don't think it was because of his scrupulous moral principles. I think it's because he just realized it was too far for a president to go. Um, even if he may have even known at that point in time that the writing was on the wall for him. I don't remember when the conversation was supposed to have happened, but uh, even Nixon didn't go to this length. I mean, this is this is crazy, you know, that, that Paul Manafort was convicted of crimes. Um, you know, Michael Cohen just got rearrested because uh, he wouldn't abide by the terms of his release. This is this, there's no presidency's ever been like this before. I don't, I'm not sure if it does the country a lot of good to just forget about it, not learn any lessons, and not hold anybody accountable for these kinds of things because it's done enormous amounts of damage. And that's before you even look at you know how this 2020 has gone with the pandemic response. Uh, I agree with you, and I and and I I realize when I asked you the question, I was uh, getting way ahead of myself and we were getting ahead of Just ourselves because there's a little bit but I, I will say this uh more and more putting everything aside putting pandemic aside putting race relations in this country aside putting tax policy and environmental policy and supreme court nominations aside jim so much of this election is a referendum on Trump's behavior in office and how he has abused power. Everything from withholding documents from congressional subpoenas, everything from ordering aides not to testify, to fighting the prosecutor in New York over his taxes, taking it to the Supreme Court. Now he's going to take it back to the, court, uh, the lower court. We'll get into that ruling. Everything is about Donald Trump behaving as though he is above the law. And there's this, this central precept in America that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States. And so I think in a certain way that this upcoming election uh, is a referendum on Donald Trump's behavior uh, as president and snubbing his nose at law enforcement officials, judges, congressmen, et cetera, and so forth. And uh, do you agree with me on that? Do you think that the American public, this is like on, this has captured the attention of the American public? I, look, I, I have had this conversation with people about how um, at some point in time, more people were inclined to, to look at him and say, well, he's just, he just does things his own way. And breaking convention, maybe that's what this country needs to be shook up a little bit. I mean, there, there were—I know there there were voters who voted for him in 2016 with that in mind: frustration with the system, frustration with the establishment, frustration with Washington D.C. and all the things that you know. If if you're if you think that the government is one of the reasons why things aren't going well for you, then you blame whoever's running it. Mm -hmm. And if that means 
from your perspective that you see it as a an a, quote unquote an establishment of it's this oh it's the same Washington folks year after year, then yeah, you might think it's time to just throw a wrench into the system and see what happens. But the his actual time in office has demonstrated that that's completely ridiculous. There may be somebody out there, a different person, who is capable of shaking that that city up and changing the way that the federal government is operated in a way that the shaking up would be a good thing. But the norms that he's broken, these aren't somehow things that were making life worse for Americans. He's just breaking norms that are convenient for his own either reelection or personal enrichment. Just or just ripping apart the judicial system because he has complete disregard for it. He has disregard for judges, he has disregard for laws. He doesn't care about them. He has complete contempt for them. I mean, everything he does proves that to be the case. So, yeah, I mean, he, he makes everything about himself all the time. I think beyond uh, his his abuses, just his personal need to make everything about himself means that this will have to be a referendum on him just because it has to be. Um, and if anything else, I, I would imagine that there's got to be some portion of Americans who are going to vote for someone else just because it's exhausting to make yeah. all these things happen constantly that we have to talk about that he's bucking this end or, or disregarding that norm when, uh, again, to emphasize, it hasn't actually re- led to anything positive happening. I mean, he hasn't <laughs> you know, rooted out all of the pedophiles for the QAnon folks, whatever these crazy people are, are thinking that he's going to go in there and rip up Washington. And he hasn't drained the swamp. All he's brought in are, are, are more oligarch types and, and folks who are completely unqualified to run like the VA, his his buddies from Mar-a-Lago that are running the VA, or the people that he's put in charge of. I mean, the, the Department of Education right now is basically telling schools what to do without bothering to come up with any way to help them in, in how to do it. You know, start schools up, just do it. We're Otherwise, we're going to take away your funding without a plan, without thinking it through. I mean, this is how you govern anything. So um, shaking all this up hasn't hasn't actually led to anything being done in a new way or, or some revolution of, of the way government is run or make it more efficient. It's just chaos and, and idiocy. Yeah. By the way, I just want to point out uh, an issue. Uh, Jim sent me a, uh, a story today about an attorney in, the, in, in Illinois who's filed a number of lawsuits against J.B. Pritzker on Pritzker's various stay-at-home orders uh, and uh, social distancing orders and mask-wearing orders, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and this attorney who uh, represents Republicans, by and large, is asserting that uh, J.B. Pritzker, Governor Pritzker, has... Uh, overreached, that uh, he's gone too far, that this is uh, executive privileged, taken to a degree that is undemocratic, and that he needs legislative approval. That we have a de- checks and balance system in our uh, in our constitution that must be uh, honored. And he, the, the latest lawsuit that Jim sent me has to do with his challenge of Illinois high school regulation or uh, commanding that student athletes wear masks. And I just find it very interesting, Jim, that the same Republican Party at this point in time would be arguing that Governor Pritzker in Illinois has uh, overextended his authority when he is, uh, has put in uh, executive orders compelling people to social distance or wear masks. But somehow or other, President Donald Trump 
has not overextended his executive privilege when he defies Congress, when he won't turn over his taxes, etc. At some point, it's inconsistent. Well, it's clearly not born of any principle because those objections here, to the extent that Illinois Republicans would, uh, you know, that they support the president on the other hand, but there were calls from right-wing media and from uh, Republican House members and, and senators through at least the last four, probably the last six years of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. denouncing President Obama as the imperial president, that he was governing by fiat, that he wrote too many executive orders. There hasn't been a peep about any about the extent of the, the president's – I mean, he, a lot of these executive orders, particularly with the Trump presidency, have just been ceremonial and meaningless. But uh, he's done quite a bit of – I'm using air quotes that you can't see – but governing by executive order because he's not a deal maker. That's that's the you know the other thing the other tr- thing that has been laid bare um, since he became president is this myth that was created by his ghostwriters back when he was in a private citizen and these books that were sent out there and became bestsellers somehow. Um, he's not a deal maker. He had he had Republican majorities and, and passed basically one bill of substance, which just reduced taxes for the richest people in America and the biggest companies in America. That was it for two years. And and since and in the year and a half since has produced nothing for the American people. I mean the the, the I think it's it was often a running joke that every time some disaster was, was happening, they would announce that it's suddenly infrastructure week again at the White House and they're gonna <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna bring in contractors and brag about new projects that they're gonna do. I mean infrastructure was something that they should have done back in twenty seventeen when he yeah. had majorities and Democrats probably would have worked with him. Uh and this and and I as we I know this is getting a little far afield from a legal question, but I mean the government deficit, the debt is in, is enormous, but interest rates are low. So if you're gonna spend that money as uh um, Paul Krugman, I think, has argued for years and years and years, you might as well spend it on American jobs. Yeah. We've got crumbling roads. We've got crumbling pipes. We've got subways that need fixing, uh, highways and byways. And so if he really was a deal maker, it should have happened then, but it didn't. And there, I don't even think there was a real effort for it because he was already busy doing all kinds of other nonsense. Uh, all right. Now, let me get back to uh, the um, uh this uh, theory that uh, Monroe is articulating. He must've heard this on, um, um, on MSNBC. I don't know where he heard it, but I don't know where he said his prediction. And Monroe has been known to make some wild predictions, but his prediction, possible prediction on sometime in January before inauguration, having been defeated, once again, getting a little ahead of ourselves here, uh, Donald Trump will step down and uh, Mike Pence will become president. At which point Mike Pence will pardon Donald Trump of all pot- potential crimes related to his presidency. And, and I said, I got it. I said to Monroe, as soon as he said that, I got Jim Coogan coming on in about an hour. I'm going to ask him, is that legal? Can that, is that possible? So I know I'm throwing you a curveball without any preparation, but uh, your thoughts on this uh, fantasy that uh, Monroe laid out. Um, <laughs> you know, he, so first of all, I, I don't know that you can prophylactically pardon someone. I don't think that's how it works. I know that they kind of did that with Nixon. Yeah. Um, 
but I think that was more ceremonial than official because he didn't commit he wasn't convicted of any crimes he wasn't indicted for anything um and I'd have to go back and look at the historical writings around Ford's actual actions at the time but was it more of a promise not to not to indict or investigate Nixon I, I, or, or was it a formal part I'd have to look at that question yeah um you know, I although I, since we're the magic of uh, doing these things remotely now, I'm, I'm looking at my computer while we're talking. This this thing at least says that there was a headline at some point back in October where Biden says there's no pardon for Trump if he's indicted after 2020. So there you go. Maybe that's uh, yeah. maybe he's already spoken on this topic. I don't I don't remember that one specifically when you asked. Um, I mean. If you step down from from the presidency and that's it, Mike Pence would be president, even if um, the election has happened and there's not a swearing in until January 20th of, of 2021. I think that the only real question there is is whether there be any constraints on Mike Pence on the basis of um, – some kind of conspiracy, whether he, you know, there's an argument that he was involved in whatever crimes that he's pardoning Trump for. I mean, I, I don't know that it's, <laughs> yeah. I, look, you want to go crazy with this. Why couldn't the House impeach Mike Pence the moment he did that? Yeah. Maybe he even floated that as an action. Yeah. You know, you're never going to get a Senate trial. Well, you could. I don't know. It depends on, the, <laughs> just because there's a transition of power doesn't mean yeah. the articles don't uh, continue. If you remember when Bill Clinton was impeached, that trial happened, I think, after the new Congress was actually set in 1990s, would have been 1999. So there yeah. was an election around, in November of 98, and they did the impeachment uh, with that, with that uh, House of Representatives, and subsequently the Senate trial happened after there was a changeover midterm so so clinton was still the president but um i don't think there's anything that would there was nothing that would preclude the house from passing an article of impeachment immediately um that minute and that might invalidate it i mean it's it gets to the question of how punitive do they want to look if it looks like they're uh punishing someone who's now voluntarily walked out the door but it's also look if you if you think about the future uh, even though he'll be close to 80 years old, if Donald Trump loses the election in November, there's nothing that precludes him from running for president in 2024. That's what Monroe said. You guys have so, been drinking from the same so, bottle. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm just telling you what the law says. I mean, he can. We had one yeah. president in this country who served non consecutive terms. There's nothing in the Constitution that precludes that. Now, do I really think that Donald Trump would, would hold on to enough power? And enough influence while he's out of office for four years to keep him keep his name in the in the pile and and stay at the top of the news cycle. I kind of don't think so. But at the same time, a Senate conviction, which this that would that's what that would require, would besides it, it's not just about removal from office. It also carries with it uh, or can depending on what they vote for if that's what they approve. The conviction can say that you're barred from holding future federal office. Yeah, I uh, and by the way, before I dismiss it as a possibility of Donald Trump running in 2024, I still need to see evidence that the Republican Party has weaned itself from its addiction to Donald Trump. Uh, and I'm not certain anything at this point. I know the, the uh, Lincoln Project is a very small 
portion of Republicans in this country. And mm-hmm. my bet is that let's say Joe Biden, we're doing a lot of projecting here, but if Joe Biden is the next president, I still think Donald Trump would have a lot of influence uh, among Republicans. All right, let, let me move on to the Supreme Court ruling on Donald Trump and his taxes. Um, I have been, um, oh, how do I put this, critical of that ruling, and people have come back and criticized me, saying I'm too jaded and cynical. Uh, my criticism is that somehow or other, while they were standing up, uh, to Donald Trump, they made a ruling uh, that enables him to conceal his taxes, uh, Jim, uh, until long after uh, November's election. So it won't be uh, applicable. I-, I thought I was alone in this. And then I heard Senator Elizabeth Warren give an interview where she said something very similar. I suddenly felt vindicated. Uh, she was criti- critical of the ruling, too. Uh, what's your take on this? Do you... Um, do you think that the Supremes uh, did, were they being a little too uh, fair to Donald Trump, as I'm saying, or do you uh, think I'm being unfair to the Supremes? Well, I mean, is, is the alternative that, that you would have sought them to say that his objections, let's just go with, which case do you want to talk about, the congressional case or the the New York case? I know they're very similar in a lot of ways, but because, um, for example, if, if it was a New York case, it might not matter how quickly it moves because the first place that those records are going to go is to a grand jury where unless there's a leak. We're not going to see those tax returns until there's an, an actual uh, indictment in uh, Manhattan. So, I, I mean, I guess procedurally, I don't know what else. The Supreme Court's decision couldn't have said, and you must turn these records over immediately. I don't think that's possible that they – I don't think they could have done that. On the other hand, in the um, congressional case where they were seeking financial and tax records, uh, I guess in that situation they could have said, "This is a federal case. This is these records can be sought, and therefore uh, they must be turned over." You can get, I mean, as as a reviewing court, the Supreme Court, or an appellate court in the federal system, or in Illinois state system, you can give the the lower court instructions. Uh, you know, that thing can be affirmed or reversed and remanded with instructions that we find uh, we further find that these documents must be disclosed within the uh, you know applicable time under the local rules for responding to a subpoena. Uh, mm-hmm. And not allowed for the because as as you know as I think I guess your um, your your frustration lies with the reference to Roberts's opinion in the Mazars case where where the uh, House Financial Services Committee I think was the one that was seeking records from his accountants and from mm-hmm. other entities uh, when they sent that back basically what Roberts said in that case was this is basically unprecedented. He even referenced the fact that it's, I mean, there's a line in there about how if, if this only happens every couple of centuries, we wouldn't really have a, a way to formulate a strict rule that the Supreme Court would apply to this kind of a situation because under previous administrations, this had always been worked out. I mean, that was, that was part of the historical reference that was put into the decision to give some context to this. He made it a point to say Congress and the president have always been able to figure this out, which I think is 
I'm sure some some folks would interpret that as chiding Congress for asking, but I think the reasonable way to look at it is Trump is failing to play the game the way that you have to play because you're not above the law. So um, they're basically what, what the what the Supreme Court does when they're looking at libel cases, when they're looking at First Amendment cases, when they're looking at Second Amendment cases, when they're looking at discrimination cases, is they come up with a system, a rule, a way that these these things are looked at, so that when something is asked for, some relief is asked for, something is given a certain level of scrutiny, the government has to explain what they're doing, etc. So here, he kind of had a rough rule and explained it that this is the first time this has come before him, that whatever they do at the lower court level, they do have to come up with some uh, careful analysis of whether the records that are being requested by the, Congre the, the House subcommittee do have a relationship to congressional action and legislation. Not that they, not that they have to. I mean, they didn't make it really strict. That was something that the, the dissent from Alito was looking for. That if you're going to subpoena a president's record, that you really have to explain and be held to a, a strict standard as to the legislative purpose for your subpoena. It wasn't that strict, but it still means that there will be a fight over how broad these subpoenas are, how many years of records, what the types of records they're looking for, uh, which is the thing that's going to take time. I mean, I'm not thrilled with that part of it either, but I don't know that you could have really avoided that there would at least have to be some adjudication of whether those subpoenas were properly and, and whether the, anybody has a legitimate objection to them. Yeah. I, I suppose the, the, the sense of cynicism that I feel is born from realizing that anybody other than the president of the United States would have had to turn over the documents. And I feel as though that the judges bent over backwards to figure out a way to write these rulings so that they did not protect the presidency from what subpoenas, give them unilateral protection. At the same time, they wanted to make sure they weren't getting involved in the election. They were not ruling in such a way that could have an impact, a direct impact in the election. So, that's that's my sense of how they. I could say if that was Ben. If that's your goal, this is an extremely elegant way to do it. So, you know, yeah. I would, you certainly have plenty of support in the way this decision plays out practically. The practical, yes, exactly, exactly. Because I remember could, nobody could really argue yeah. with you that that's their, yeah. that that was their purpose. You know, they could say, "Go ask John Roberts; he'll tell you that's not why." But. Based on the ruling, you have plenty of support for your – if that's your theory, you've got a lot of evidence for it. I would say I have a lot of evidence. Uh, maybe I've been covering Chicago politics too long, and I'm way too cynical. All right. Uh, speaking of which, let's, uh, let's put a happy uh, note on things. Uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch shocked the heck out of you and me uh, with a couple of his – well, two, two decisions – uh, in, in this last go around, particularly the one having to do with the, the Native American land in Oklahoma. I thought that was a fascinating case. And why don't you uh, clue our uh, listeners in on it a little bit and see what Neil Gorsuch is up to. Yeah, so it, it's, it's well, one of the things that you and I had exchanged 
this week um, leading up to this show was a couple of different articles about Gorsuch's role and maybe and about the there was one you sent me today about the court itself. It was a um, a Yale either law student or professor that was writing about professor Reed kind of the is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. Um, talking about how the the things that we take for granted in terms of the individual justices political ideology doesn't always that, that they don't follow it 100% of the time. And you know, to that to that article, the, the thing that I think that was probably one of the most powerful things that he mentioned was these guys are not subject to campaigning or raising money. I think that's one of the I mean, first of all they're they're judges and they're not politicians in that sense. But that's probably one of the biggest things that has at least enabled these Supreme Court justices in an extremely fractured and divided time to occasionally stick by some actual principle that they hold and make a decision that, quote unquote, crosses the aisle, even though there's not really an aisle in the Supreme Court. It's nine judges. Um, but but compared to what you'd normally think of as five conservatives and, and four liberals, uh, and there have been several of those decisions just in the past two weeks. So, um, but but as far as Judge Justice Gorsuch goes, it's really been instructive, and I think both you and I—I I don't know if we owe an apology, but at least had have been—we um, were more cynical than I guess we had to be about how things would play out when the rubber met the road in consequential decisions that he would make once he was on the court. Because um, yeah, you may be right that. The Trump, the Trump tax decisions do at least allow Trump to play to, to play this out through the election, but at least they stood up for the principle that the president isn't above the law, and that in this situation, there's nothing presidential, no special exception that uh, he gets to assert where he doesn't have to turn those things over, or his banks don't have to turn those things over. And Gorsuch signed on those opinions too. But the Oklahoma case really is interesting. Um, it, we have an atrocious history in this country of the way we have treated uh, the indigenous peoples that were here before white settlers showed up and before we started forming political bodies in the original colonies and then turned into the United States of America. Um, <clears throat> and that continued right through, well, some of it still continues to this day, but it was really the the some of the worst violence was still going on in the early 1800s. And so this Oklahoma decision, as Gorsuch is, he is certainly a stylistic writer and, and tries to harken back to some history. Even though he's a textualist, he still wanted to put this in some context historically. Uh, he brought up the fact that even the formation of Oklahoma, the way that it's, uh, it was originally set up and that it was some tribal lands were set up there was the product of the Trail of Tears, that uh, American troops set up a forced march of Native Americans out of the southeast because we wanted that land. What, you know, white Americans wanted to use that land for farming and for other production and uh, didn't want Indi American Indians around. So they gave them the exchange of we'll just take what we want, but at least we'll give you a place to go 1,500 miles west of here that you've never been to before. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is there were treaties. I mean, this was a 
the Creek, uh, I think it's the Muscogee Creek Nation, actually yeah, had a, a legal treaty with the United States government to have the. There's some technical things in there about the language that they use, about the, it's a warrant to the land or whether it's an officially a reservation. Uh, just not really the uh, of consequence here. But the point is, uh, Gorsuch's decision stood for or underscored and found that. Fundamentally, once they established this reservation for this for these American Indians, for these well, let's call them Native Americans uh, from the Muscogee Creek Nation, that only Congress could take that away. And by the way, he even admits that Congress has done that lots of times. They've broken all kinds of trees with Native American groups in all sorts of places, including Oklahoma. But that unless there's an official act from Congress that breaks that original treaty, that their claim to almost the entire eastern half of Oklahoma would still stand. The reason why this came about or why this came as a, a decision before the Supreme Court is uh, a guy named Jim T. McGirt committed what sounds like a really awful crime against a child and was prosecuted by Oklahoma authorities. And once he was convicted, his appellate his uh, appellate lawyers raised the issue that he never should have been tried in an Oklahoma court, that because there was this major crimes act, was this law that was passed that related – that covered how to prosecute uh, – that, that federal jurisdiction covered prosecution of crimes committed by uh, American Indians on tribal land, that – the argument was that the Oklahoma authorities never had the right to prosecute him. Right. So that's that suddenly turns into this enormous case that has wide-reaching implications for the entire state of Oklahoma and for other Native peoples in other places, possibly, depending on you know what encroachment is trying to be made on their land now. Uh, because ultimately, if you look at what's going on there, the case talks about how Oklahoma's trying to make the case that, well, maybe there wasn't an official act of Congress, but look at these other things that Congress did that sort of we should interpret to mean that they meant to break this treaty, or look at these other things that have happened between us and the Creek Nation. Therefore, we should the courts should say that this has now been broken, and we should they should no longer have the control that they have over that part of the state. Or at the end of the day, judges this would be chaos. So just don't, don't, uh, don't find that this treaty still applies and that, uh, that this promise still abides to this day. So, uh, the, the opinion was written by judge Gorsuch. So he's, he's the one saying in a five to four decision that without an official act of Congress that pulls that, that says we were, we're breaking this treaty that, uh, the tribe still has jurisdiction over their portion of the state, even if other people live there, even if non-tribal members live in some of those parts of what is going to be determined, I guess, to be a reservation. Um, but it means that they won't be losing all kinds of powers that they otherwise would have lost. And, you know, it would have been more injustice piled on to what would be almost 200 years now since the original march that put them there. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say this. I, I hope I'm apologizing to Neil Gorsuch in a year. I got to wait a, a full year, but there's potential that I will be. And I'll tell you why. Uh, and Jim, we've had this conversation in the abstract many times. 
I just, I just don't believe that judges are like these blind adjudicators, objective adjudicators. I believe that judges are human beings just like you and me. And they come to the bench with a lifetime worth of biases and worldview and they are determined in their own way, whether they admit it or not. They never admit it when they're at a confirmation hearing, but they're determined to use what power and authority they have to shape the world in the way they want that world shaped. They have an agenda. And when I think it's Judge Scalia, I rem- <laughs> you could see his agenda in the way he wrote. And like he would rail against government bureaucrats and like a land rights uh, decision about how the the government has overextended its authority by um, implementing too many environmental regulations. Uh, You could see that he just had the strong aversion to bureaucrats telling private property owners what to do. Okay, even if it was in the larger best interest of humanity. Okay, and so. I never believed that he was uh, unbiased. I believe that any any matter that came before him, he would try to use it to, in in this particular instance, annihilate or undercut federal regulators. All right. In the case of Gorsuch, he he exposed something vaguely resembling empathy to Native Americans. I was so astounded. I almost passed out when I read it. I'm like, oh, my God, a Trump nominated judge displaying empathy. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, Trump must be livid. Well, I'm sure Trump wasn't even paying attention, but he would have been livid if someone explained it to him. And so that's why that's why I vote, because there's a possible if he has empathy to Native Americans in Oklahoma on a matter like how they've been continuously abused by the federal government that doesn't honor or abide by the contracts that signs with them. And I thought contracts were written in stone in our country. Uh, if, if he shows empathy for Native Americans, what's next? Like black people unfairly thrown into jail on a, with a bogus war on drugs? So maybe... Jim Hoogan, I will be apologizing to Neil Gorsuch in the year or so. I still need more evidence. What about you? Well, you know, yeah, you're referencing that we've gone back and forth on whether something, whether the judicial notion of textualism really exists. You know, one man's textualism is another man's liberal folly, right? I mean, even in the in the other Gorsuch decision, where he found that the prohibition on employment discrimination on the basis of sex, that phrase, on the basis of sex, applied to transgender and gay uh, people. I mean, in, in a dissent in that opinion, Kavanaugh says, you're trying to cloak this as a textual reading of the language, but they couldn't possibly have meant that in 1970, or was it uh, 67, whenever they passed that law, that the, yeah. that the cultural context, that whatever they understood when they were saying on the basis of sex couldn't possibly have been what you're saying. So there's a that's that highlights that situation, I think, perfectly, where both both judges would certainly say that they are textualists, originalists, that they are students of the, the Scalia school of um, judicial interpretation of statutory language. But here they are on a very 
clear and critical principle on two opposite sides of a ruling, which has enormous implications because how narrowly you classify who gets protection, quote unquote, on the basis of sex is going to either affect a hundred million Americans or another 20 or 30 million Americans on top of that, that, that wouldn't have otherwise been protected by that statute. So, um, you know, in these two decisions, in the in the employment discrimination case that Gorsuch wrote, and in the McGirt case, the Oklahoma case, his opinions are grounded in the text. I mean, that's actually what he refers to in the McGirt decision, is he looks back at statutes that the laws that deal with uh, criminal enforcement for uh, as it relates to Native peoples and their reservation lands, and he looks at the actual agreement, and he looks at how this is done in, in prior cases where they're interpreting uh, whether contracts have sufficiently been broken or treaties had been broken or not. I mean, it's, it, it espouses that it's, it's born from the text. And the same thing in that discrimination case, that it's looking at the language and saying, well, sex is sex, and therefore it must mean sexual orientation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but obviously there's lots of conservatives that were pulling their hair out and losing their minds. They've already, you know, the hardcore uh, anti-gay rights folks have uh, have been they've they've given up on Justice Kennedy a long time ago. They've they've given up on John Roberts. Now they've they're they losing their minds. That now all of a sudden their new Justice Gorsuch <laughs> was not going to protect them the way that they thought they, that he was going to. So it's to them it's a huge betrayal. But I yeah I think that the when you really look at what Supreme Court judges do because it is different. They're not legislators, but they certainly do make rules beyond that which a, a lower court judge has the power to do. They definitely make policy because they can't really help it. You know, if you, if you interpret one thing or one way you go versus the other way that you go with interpreting a statute is going to further define what that policy is going to be. It's unavoidable. Yeah. So uh, I think the notion of how strictly you're adhering to text is always going to be subjective. I mean, is it only what the words meant in 1792, or is it only what the words meant in 1837? Uh, and then how do you prove that? So it's it's no matter how they try to slice it, it's a flexible concept. So I think it's there is some inherent winking going on when somebody is really saying that I believe in strict interpretation of the Constitution. <laughs> um, but but, yeah. but the thing is, you you know, the whole point of being a judge and being a good one is knowing how to do that with restraint, with logic, uh, and, and with be, and being compelling in how you put together an argument. I mean, maybe at the end of the day, this is just a reminder that lawyers and judges are lawyers and everybody else who's trying to figure out how the law works it's ultimately about whether or not it's something is going to be persuasive because if it's not, then it's going to fall by the wayside or the law is going to be changed because it's, you're not making a very persuasive case. So you're still somewhere deep down, you're appealing to what people believe is right and wrong. Yeah. Well, I, and on that line, I do believe I said this already. I've said it to you. I said on the air, I do believe that, uh, and that the case regarding, um, expanding civil rights to include uh, gay people uh, I think Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts were being, how do I put this, very political. And they were coming to the conclusion that their party, the Republican Party, can no longer 
be wedded to such intolerance that it will mean the end of their party. So I do believe I have no proof of this. I but I just been watching the career of John Roberts for a long time. And I think Neil Gorsuch is cut from the same cloth and very shrewd, astute uh, political judges. And I do believe they've said, you know what? We cannot exist as a party if we're dedicated to these antediluvian notions that the whack out <laughs> wing that nominated us, by the way, uh, are uh, are clinging to. So that's just my personal belief on that one, uh, Jim. I think that was a, a political and, it, and I agree with it. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that I don't right. believe you could separate politics. Well, and you, so, yeah, you're you're pointing out that it ha- it serves the additional function of keeping it so that that party doesn't just completely go extinct by painting themselves into too narrow of a corner. So there's exactly there's like the John Roberts, the institutionalist who's trying to uphold the legitimacy of the court, but also the John Roberts, the institutionalist who's trying to uphold the legitimacy of the Republican Party. Exactly. He did that with Obamacare. He did that with Mm -hmm. this uh, last ruling. Uh, He did that with the ruling about uh, Trump and his taxes and uh, I see a pattern with this gentleman, uh, and I don't blame him. He's he's a lifelong Republican, and judges have lives before they go to the bench. Uh, and Trump is, I say this all the time, trying to take the t- leading Republicans off a cliff. And I don't think John Roberts wants to follow him off that cliff. Anyway, Jim, we're out of time, and um, it's always a blast talking with you. Uh, we'll probably do it next month. All right. It's my pleasure, Ben. And don't forget one other good decision. They won't stop Mary Trump from publish, publishing her book. Yes. Her <laughs> so, no, you're right. Oh, man, which uh, I haven't purchased it yet, but I'm going to make I'm going to make a political decision. Jim, it's when I buy that book, that is a political decision. I need to send a message, at least to Mary Trump. that. I support you for uh, standing up to your evil uncle. So (laughs) that'll be a (laughs) political decision. All right. Very good. Jim Coogan. Thank you very much. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Get outside and explore Chicago on a CAFC river cruise aboard Chicago's first lady now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Called the number one boat tour in Chicago by TripAdvisor, CAC docents share the fascinating secrets and stories behind more than 50 famous buildings facing the Chicago River. Delight in panoramic views and hear how our hometown became world-renowned for its architecture. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. Hey, college students. Are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, July 10th is moments away. But before we do this, we got to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. By the way, if you're listening to this show... We have over 500,000 downloads. And if you own a business, boy, we would love to sponsor it. That's right. Uh, Just contact Tracy Bame at the Chicago Reader. 
And uh, I don't know, find the number for the Sun Times and call someone there and uh, say, hey, I want to sponsor the Ben Jarofsky show. I'm not sure who you asked for, but uh, yeah, that'd be fantastic if you uh, became a sponsor. Well, I'll make a commercial. We'll do a Ben will do a live read. He loves live reads. But seriously, uh, I would love to add your business or union to this list. I am about to read the Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our dear friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Let me tell you about voting by mail. It's pretty cool. Voting by mail ensures equitable access for everyone. Normally, vote by mail applications are filled out online or in person. This creates a burden for people with limited access to transportation or internet services. Disproportionately, the elderly or people of color who are among those at greatest risk from COVID-19. Because of the pandemic, a law was passed in Illinois for November requiring vote by mail applications be sent to anyone who voted in 2018, 2019, or the 2020 primary. This falls short of what is needed particularly since these elections saw low turnout. We need to expand access. Mail-in voting is the best way to ensure everyone's voice can be heard safely. We can help expand voting access in Chicagoland by asking officials to send every eligible voter a vote-by-mail application. So, visit VoteMailChicago.com. That's VoteMailChicago.com. Dot com for call scripts and a petition. One more time. Vote. V-O-T-E. Mail. M-A-I-L. Chicago. C-H-I-C-A-G-O. Dot com to make sure that every voter in Cook County has safe and equitable polling. That's correct. Heard a lot of complaints. I'm not a doctor. Heard a lot of complaints.